What's the bit of advice that you would give your younger self today? For me, it's really about enjoying the moment and living in the moment. As I reflect on my early career and, and how I approach both my work life and, and my personal life, it was always about the next thing. It was always mm. about the next promotion, the next raise, the next house. What I've come to understand is that I didn't appreciate the things that I was experiencing in the moment. And I, I missed out on opportunities to build relationships in a workplace environment or spend more time with family and friends outside of work. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you John Reagan, who is the global COO over at 360 Group Limited. If you're not familiar with them, they own iconic brands, including FAO Schwartz, Sharper Image, Wembley, and Vornado. And they are sold in over 90,000 retail locations around the world. You can imagine how their operations, how complex they must be around that. And by the way, John has extensive experience in the private equity world, but he also has expertise in driving enterprise growth and transformation, actually at Fortune 500 companies as well, including General Electric, Granger, and Weyerhaeuser. John, welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. So let's start where every great interview always starts, which is beekeeping. I understand <laughs> that you have the distinction of being a senior C-suite executive and a beekeeper. What's the scoop on that? So the bees are sort of my escape at times. And one of the things that, that I found most critical as I've advanced through my career is the ability to have balance. It can't be all about work. It can't be all about outside of work, but you've got to have things that are, for, for lack of a better term, the escape. And for mm -hmm. me, the bees provide that opportunity. I'm, I'm fascinated by both their place in the environment, but also how they work together and how they really do what they do, which is mm. is create honey and provide pollination for a lot of the the uh, the plants and and flowers in the area. So it's something that I did as a kid. Uh, I found it was far easier to do uh, growing up in Kentucky. There was far less work involved, and I think part of that was just luck. I think part of that is changes in the environment over the years and and some challenges that the bees have had. Uh, my wife likes to joke that that my hobby has become a a second career. Uh, so she certainly enjoys the honey and likes giving it away to friends. But uh, for me, that's just something where I can leave work behind. I can leave some of the challenges that, that I'm facing day in and day out and really focus on something that, that provides balance and, and enjoyment to me. So I've got four hives today. Uh, I've had as many as six. And, um, you know, I think four is probably a little better number uh, just from the workload and, and keeping uh, everything on. But they're they're really fascinating creatures hmm. that uh, I, I just enjoy learning about and continue to learn more every year that I'm involved with them. So you got into it at a young age in Kentucky. Did you go ask your neighbor about it or what drew you to, to getting into this? No, I was actually in the Boy Scouts. And so uh, this was uh, this was an opportunity to earn my beekeeping merit badge. Uh, so I, I bought a, a handbook that I think the Boy Scouts actually provided. And, and there was a local beekeeper and bee supply store uh, right around where I grew up. So I was able to, to get a hive that was already populated. And so it was it was really taking a 
fully functioning hive and, and moving it to the farm that, that I grew up on. And, and things just went from there. Uh, again, wow. it was uh, far less work and management. I think part of that, again, is, is it's a little warmer uh, in Kentucky than it is in Chicago at times, particularly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, January, February, March time frame. But uh, no, and, and as I grew up, I, you know, I continued to do that throughout high school. And then obviously, uh, when I, I say obviously, I went away to college and um, my dad still has uh, obviously different hives today, but he's still uh, he's still got a few hives of his own that uh, that he oh uses. wow so you know I, I'm an Eagle Scout and Boy Scouts really got me into so many cool things yes at a young age beekeeping was not one of them but <laughs> a lot of other things uh, regarding the outdoors uh, I was really into a lot of the competitions with knot tying and fire building yep. and things like that. I really enjoyed that, that competition and getting the, getting our scouts kind of organized for yep. that kind of stuff. Um, but it's so scouting had a real formative impact upon you too. It sounds like. It did. And, you know, growing up on a farm, you know, we, my parents still live on the same farm I grew up on. Uh, my dad still not as much as he used to, but still has about 130 acres there at the house. So when I go home, I'm literally staying in the bedroom uh, that I grew up in as a kid. And so between the Boy Scouts and a lot of the stuff around the farm, it was really formative in terms mm-hmm. of having responsibility, uh, in terms of, of watching things grow and, and being responsible for their well-being. And it was one of those things that as I've progressed through my career, that's always been sort of foundational uh, in terms of, of how I approach things and, and how I, uh, I approach life in general. Well, all right. So fast forwarding as it to a, to adulthood, you've got the bees. What do you say to people in your neighborhood who are terrified that they're going to get stung by your bees? <laughs> the bees don't want to harm you any more than, than you want to be stung by the bees. And, and I think one of the things people don't recognize for honeybees, uh, once they sting you, the, the, the bee will die. Uh, they, mm-hmm. their stinger detaches, uh, if they sting you. And so, they have an instinct that says the only time I will sting someone is if it's an absolute mm. necessity. Um, now, bumblebees and wasps and things like that are different. They can sting multiple times. But um, for the most part, our neighbors haven't complained. I think uh, the only the only concern that I received is that uh, our one of our neighbors has a honey hummingbird feeder, uh, which is basically, if you're familiar with a hummingbird feeder, it's sugar water. It's sugar water, yes. Yeah, the hummingbirds will, uh, will feed off of... Well, bees like that too. And, uh, you know, once the bees find her hummingbird feeder, uh, I'll end up with some bright orange honey and uh, she ends up with an empty feeder. So, uh, <laughs> so we, we try to avoid that okay. where we can. Yeah, I, I like it. And I, and I hope that every leader out there has a chance to find a hobby that's like yep. a lifelong pursuit. I think for me, I, I've tennis, is, tennis play has been like that for me. Okay. Um, but I've, I've tried other things too, in the pursuit of sort of diversifying, like I've, I've tried improv theater, uh, oh, which is, okay. which is terrifying, uh, and, yes. and enjoyable all at the same time, as well as others, guitar and all kinds of stuff. And I've kind of dabbled in things like that, but I think finding some kind of lifelong pursuit and being willing to explore that, uh, is, is uh, really, really cool. And I think the, the honey bee has a lot of layers there for life, how they work as a community, how they thrive, how they take care of one another, how they communicate. I mean, it's kind of mystical in terms of how they, uh, how they work a bit there. It's brought, and, and you don't have to riff on this, but I, I know, and I've read from like Seth Godin and some other people, how there's an element of teamwork. Bees can teach us a lot about teamwork. Yes. 
Uh, Absolutely. And, and each bee has a role and they know their role. And, and what's interesting is they can, if they determine that there's a shortage of a certain type of bee within the hive, they, the queen can actually determine, hey, we need more drones or we need more forager bees or we need more worker bees. And so they'll, they'll balance out the workload, if you will, within the hive throughout the summer. And, and the, the makeup of the hive changes significantly over the winter uh, as huh. they really draw down to, to a much smaller number of total bees than what you'd see in the summer. So it's, it's all instinctual, but I think some of it is, is, is just fascinating to, to understand how they make decisions, for lack of a better term, and, and, and manage themselves for survival. Well, there you go, everybody. You probably didn't expect to understand so much about so much about the honeybee and leadership today, but you just got a dose from the mouth of a real live COO beekeeper. Now, thinking about thinking about your career behind the uh, beyond the hive, what is it that, or what's the bit of advice that you would give your younger self today? I, I think one thing that has become clear to me over the years. And again, it, it takes time and it takes perspective to start to realize some of these things. But for me, it's really about enjoying the moment and living in mm. the moment. And I think as I reflect on my early career and, and how I approach both my work life and, and my personal life, it was always about the next thing. It was always mm. about the next promotion, the next raise, the next house. And while I wasn't unhappy uh, you know, mm. in my 20s and 30s, I think what I've come to understand is that I didn't appreciate the things that I was experiencing in the moment. And I, I missed out on opportunities to build relationships in a workplace environment or spend more time with family and friends outside of work. And I think, again, probably that's at least for me, um, someone could have told me that at, at 31 or 32 and, and I would have probably dismissed it. But I think that <laughs> you wouldn't the, have listened to yourself anyway. Exactly. I think the perspective of time, though, uh, has has really shown me that in, in my earlier self. And, it, and it's also something that I, I try and focus on today. It's still it, I would say it's not always something that comes naturally to me uh, because I, you know, I tend to focus on what's the problem at hand? What's the issue that, that we're dealing with? What's the challenge at work? And, and I don't appreciate the fact that there's a lot of good things happening and a lot of um a, a lot of benefit that is being provided to me by those around me and, and hopefully uh, some benefit that I'm providing those around me as well. So what happens or who or what do you do that reminds you in those moments to kind of pull back and enjoy? One of the things that I've done, and this was actually just a few years ago in my career, and I think we've all probably been through the different personality assessments and understanding uh, trying to better understand who you are. And I, over the years and in, in, in parts of my career, I'd done Myers-Briggs, I'd done DISC. And mm -hmm. three or four years ago, I, I, I took part in a, an Enneagram exercise. Mm -hmm. And for the first time for me, it was, it was an aha moment to say, okay, this is where I fit within the Enneagram. And as I read some mm -hmm. of the descriptors and, and some of the drivers behind my specific personality type, it was very eye-opening to say, Wow, that that really is me. And I think you know, with any exercise like that, there's probably pieces and parts where you say, "Well, I'm really not that way," or I, I can say, "Well, I, I don't do that." But I would say the majority of what I came to understand through that process was was very um, eye-opening for me in terms of sort of a window into how I operate and how I think. And so, understanding that and part of that process was was recognizing when I'm operating above the line and below the line mm. and 
taking that time to step back and realize I've, I've generally got very specific behaviors and very specific thought process when I start to drop below the line, uh, for yeah. lack of a better term, which what? means I'm I'm not my best self. I'm, I'm not engaging in a way that um, is, is promoting the best of, of my capabilities, the best of my personality, the best of my support for others. And again, the, the, the typical signs are very, very consistent. And so having that awareness and knowing what those behaviors look like and even what those thoughts look like, um, it, it, it's, it's sort of that alarm bell. Now, it's not always easy recognizing that to say, okay, I'm going to pull myself out of this, but it, it certainly is an awareness to say, okay, I need to, I need to pause for a moment. I need to gain some perspective. And in some cases, it's reaching out to others. It's, it's just a moment that internally I can, I can take. Uh, and it's, it's sometimes more than a moment. You know, it may, it may be a couple day process to say, okay, mm-hmm. I've, I've stepped back. I've got that perspective now. Uh, but that's something again that that until a few years ago I didn't have. I'd done a lot of work around self-awareness and understanding, but I'd never had anything or any process that I've been a part of speak to me really as clearly uh, as as that did. Yeah, the Enneagram is a powerful tool. It's it uh, I'm a type three. Which do you remember which type you are? I am. I'm yeah. a very very solid one. So very You're much a solid one. Okay. Yep. And yep. what you referred to, I think, you know, they, and then the Enneagram world, they talk about like the shadow side of right. your, and, and what a, what does a healthy type two or type one or type three look like and act like, and when you get pushed beyond your boundaries, what behaviors start to emerge, you know, exactly. are you looking to other people for lots of approval for everything. Are you stalling out? Are you keep getting paralysis analysis or whatever happens right. to be, but being able to, I think the Enneagram does a great job of pointing to what those behaviors are so we can catch ourselves in a moment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But no, that's, that, that's so, so good. And assessments can be great for that. Are you a journaler? Do you, do you journal and I've explored that? I've explored that at times for me, it's not, it, it it's not as therapeutic. It tends to be more of a, a a forced exercise. So I found other things. Again, the bees would be a good example of that. I tend yeah. to spend a lot of time uh, at the gym. I'm, I'm not as as effective at the gym as I once was. But again, that's a that's an area where I can I can step back a little bit and focus on other things besides some of those mm-hmm. challenges. You know, that's about the beekeeping, going to the gym, and it's it's somewhere for me in that sometimes the best way to to get out of your head for a while is to do something physical or take your body yep. to another place entirely. Right. Exactly. Uh, sometimes it's hard to be clear, strategic and thoughtful and self-aware when you're in your office in that exactly. same environment. You know, you, I, I, my understanding is that 360 groups based in Hong Kong, right? We, we have a, we have a part of our headquarters that's basically okay. our Asia offices are headquartered in Hong Kong. Our offices uh, for for merch source and there's a couple couple divisions under under 360 Group, but our our U.S. offices are in Irvine, and then most of my team is actually in Hong Kong. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Okay, so what I'm getting out of here is 
you're you've got lots of time zones that you're dealing with and you're trying to manage all of that and you talked about work-life balance how do you think about like what's the advice you give to people uh around maintaining work-life balance when you've got people's work days who don't necessarily overlap well with yours it's a challenge and it's it's something that that i deal with almost on a daily basis it's something our organization deals with because in addition mm-hmm. to our hong kong offices we've got again a, a corporate facility in irvine we've got our largest usdc which is based in savannah georgia so we're really dealing with not just two time zones but but often three or four mm-hmm. as we try to do the work and it really is a global organization and and for me one of the challenges that i have is i, I very much like to complete a task so in other words i like to keep current on my email i like to keep things completed and the reality is i just can't do that anymore yeah i wake up every day with 50 new emails from overnight Mm -hmm. that i didn't have when i went to bed yes and so part of it for me has been understanding and accepting that you know it 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 can't always be perfect again going back Mm -hmm. to, to sort of my perfectionist outlook from the enneagram discussion that we just had I've had to learn to let go of some things, and and I've got people on my team, particularly those that have been in, in the organization for a, for a longer period of time, who who tend to gravitate to that you know twenty hour days or or you know weekend work and things like that, and it really has to be a discussion with them, hmm. sort of from my own learning and experience that it, it's it's okay not to respond to everything in real time. It's okay to prioritize projects, and so so my role really becomes in a lot of those situations providing that insight, providing, again, some personal examples from from my own experience, but also helping to prioritize what is really urgent, what needs to get done in 24 hours, or what needs to get done this week versus what's a longer discussion or a longer term set of initiatives. And it's a a constant challenge. And you talked about it. I I think in some ways it probably got a little worse uh, during the pandemic just because Mm. we became so reliant on video everyone was was disengaged. So even some of the work and decisions that could take place in the office now became a, a, a Teams meeting or a Zooms meeting. And so it, 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 in a lot of ways, what I've seen in this organization is it really reinforced some of that 24-hour availability. And it's it's something that, um, again, I, I struggle with. I, I do try to, to manage my own time in that sense. Uh, but it's it's a conversation that I regularly have with my directs and even the broader organization. Yeah, it's such a good conversation to have and to understand what is their ideal work day, what are they working on. And if you're if you're really, I think, doing it right, it just forces more open communication yep. around, around your schedule. Otherwise, it's so easy to let your email become your to-do list. Exactly. Like, like you'd wake up, you're going to get all your, I mean, I, I worked for international organizations before and I'd wake up. And I would have the 50 emails from people that had, had worked a full day before me. Right. And I'm like, man, I found myself like that became my to-do list. And I would deprioritize all the really important stuff that I need to be working on too. Cause I was just responding so quickly. But the reality is those people like in Asia did not need to be up responding to my email. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they're responding to me all email I sent. And so we're just kind of torturing each other. With our, our communication. And, so. and you talked about, or we talked about earlier in the conversation, one of the, the things that I would tell my younger self, and and that's mm-hmm. another good example. I, I can remember you know, 
10, 15 years ago, and if I were to be honest, probably more recently than that, of going on vacation and still logging into email every day and, and feeling the need to respond, even though out of office was set, people within the organization knew that I was out. Anyone external that had sent me an email knew that, but I felt this obligation uh, to go in and 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 respond. And the reality is, again, there's there's probably times where we can't fully disconnect and fully unplug, regardless of, of what else is mm-hmm. going on. But I think part of it for me is also setting that example with my team. So if I am on vacation or out of the office or doing something that's not work related, I, I'm not setting that double standard where I tell them to do one thing, but I'm also not doing that myself. Yeah. What a great sort of trigger to be aware of when you're doing something as a leader that you don't want your team to do. And if you're responding because you are the COO to an email while you're on vacation, whether you realize it or not, you just told everybody else on that email that they should be working on vacation too, or responding to emails. And maybe that's what you feel as a leader, but I think most people say, and I've been, I've been in this where don't do what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. And that's like, it's like parenting too. You know, they don't, a kid doesn't necessarily do what you tell them to do. They're going to do what you do. Exactly. So, <laughs> Powerfleeting by example. And, and, and to be honest, that that's been a that's been a more difficult one for me to to get my arms around because again, mm-hmm. particularly at, at at the C level, C suite level of the organization, I think you feel the need to be available in the event that there is an emergency. And again, I think there's there's times when that's okay. But if you were really to look at a lot of the things that are in the email box, it, it doesn't rise to that level of emergency. And again, if I'm asking my team to to behave in a certain way, I think I have to to behave that way as well. Yeah, so so good. Remind, I mean, it's it's just a great thing because like you become a better, more holistic leader because you remember I'm leading people, and exactly. I want to set that the right example. Oh man, so so good uh, uh, for all that standpoint. Now. You know, we, you and I were talking about uh, before we got on here, John, about the importance of recognizing and appreciating the differences in how people learn, think, and react, and how this impacts leadership and teams. What's your what's your overall philosophy on that? I think it's a critical piece of, of being an effective leader. One of the, the the worst pieces of advice that I ever got, and I didn't realize it at the time was to treat everyone on your team the same way. And where yeah. that was coming from was a place of you can't have favorites, you you don't you don't want to treat people differently. And so while I think the the, the core guideline there is is appropriate, you you don't want to have favorites. You don't you don't want to create a situation where there's you know multiple classes of employees that are that are part of your team. But the reality is everyone is different. And if you're treating everyone the same, in terms of communication and conversation and discussion and, and how you expect them to work, my guess would be you're probably treating 90% of the organization in the wrong way. And so for me, again, a lot of this has been my own self-awareness and my own exploration over the years to understand how I work internally, but then also realizing that um, as I relate to others in the organization, there may be things that are perfectly natural for me in terms of approach or even dialogue or, or direction um, that other people would receive in very, very different ways. And I think mm. one of the things that I always do uh, when coming into a new organization or bringing someone new into the organization is really invest in onboarding and not just with that individual, mm. but 
pull in that individual's peer group or pull in that that you know my direct report team as a part of that because I think for for the organization to be effective you've got to have that understanding of the differences in people both at the higher levels but certainly at the peer levels of the organization as well so that's one of the things again when someone uh, new comes into my direct report team we always take the time to go through that exercise it may not be a full-blown Enneagram or personality sort of assessment, although I've done that before, but at a minimum, it's talking about and understanding how do you work? What's your ideal work setting and, and how does that relate to the people that you're reporting to mm. and, and working with at the peer level? Taylor, your leadership to the people you're leading. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. And it's, you, it's just like, oh yeah, that, of, of course, of course. But saying it and doing it are com- two completely different things, especially when there's emergencies or the urgencies and we just need to get this stuff done um, yep. and taking the time to understand them. Now, but I think one of the things that you said that that caught me was, okay, Ben, we focus on getting to know them and them getting to know us in the onboarding process. So it also reminds me of the saying, you know, you, you end up with people, how you start with them or you begin like the ending is representative of the beginning. And so you're trying to start with that area of awareness. So I I just think that it's such a, such a powerful thing because a lot of times onboarding is all about teaching them how we do things around here. And almost like trying to shape and mold them into what we want them to become. But it sounds like you're flipping that on its head a little bit. It, it, it's a challenge because as you, again, particularly if, you, if you're talking about a direct report team of six people or eight repeat people, or you've even got a larger uh, team that you're working with. Again, everybody in that audience is going to be different. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, of some of the things that I've worked through even, even within the last couple of months. I have people on my team that are very comfortable if we're trying to solve a problem for me to come in and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. Our objective is to, to solve this issue and I need the team to execute A, B, C, and D. They prefer that because it's you know trying to work through that, that root mm. cause analysis or problem solving challenge. is just not a place that, that, that they're, they're comfortable. And if given mm. very specific instructions there, they will absolutely execute to the best of their ability. I've got others on my team who, if I went to them and said, all right, here's what we're trying to solve, and I need you to do A, B, C, and D to get us there, they're going to feel disenfranchised. They're going to feel disempowered, and they're going to be upset that they weren't a part of the solution process. So, again, pulling in all number of different silos, even within the operations team, getting to that solution and, and getting the entire team in a process that they're comfortable with and that brings out the best of their capabilities and their abilities. Um, it, it's a process each time and it's, it's, wow. it's a different process each mm-hmm. time, but setting out with that objective. And again, for me personally, knowing the team and for them knowing me and, and trusting me throughout that process, um, it usually makes the result much more impactful and much more effective than it would have been if, if we tried to do everything where I provide the guidance or everything where I kind of turn it over to the team and, and we you know make a stew with it kind of kind of yeah how you how you approach people on this situations with a problem and I think people just don't think about that distinction right you know, sometimes you have a leader who's like look you know 
uh, I want my employees, I want to give them the problem. I want them to come back with possible solutions. I don't have to do all the thinking. And then sometimes you get people like, look, you know, I just started. I've not been in this area. I don't even know where to start on that problem. I need you to give me a kickstart on the direction. But as a leader, maybe you want, you have a preferred way of giving direction or or sort of asking for solutions, but it's not all about how you prefer it as a leader to be maximum effectiveness, to have maximum effectiveness over the long haul. It's what are the preferred styles of people that want to be led and then finding that sweet spot, you know, that, that melding of the two to create a truly engaged team. And again, it's, it's finding that sweet, sweet spot that works for everyone. And, and again, there's no set answer coming out of each problem or each scenario. It's probably going to be a little different each time of, of finding that, that most effective middle ground. But again, I think having the trust with the team, and having that 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 comfort level, and, and in some cases, it's, it's a vulnerability from my side. If someone says, you know, this isn't the best approach, this isn't working for for me, or understanding that and knowing that, I actually welcome that feedback. I'm yeah. I'm I'm more than interested to 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 hear their approach and their input in a, in a way that that hopefully will improve whatever we're trying to work on. Was the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career? And how did it help your growth or success on down the road, John? So this is this is a, an interesting for me, and I would say fortunately it's only happened one time in my career. Although you know, given the the outcome, maybe it's a, it certainly was a growth moment. But uh, for for much of my career, uh, I was involved in the wood products industry, and the wood products is essentially tied directly to the housing market. So in two thousand eight, uh, you know, the housing bubble crashed, and for the next three or four years. Uh, I was really in a difficult environment and the company was in a difficult environment Mm. because there just was not demand for wood products, for new construction and things like that. And it was actually a a, a company where I had become very comfortable in the role. I really liked the people. And it was, it was, I I actually remember thinking on a numerous, on a number of occasions, this is where I'll retire. This is where I'm going to spend my career. And I, I walked into the office one day and, and I knew that there were going to be, you know, for, for years we had been in sort of a, a downsizing mode. Uh, in the particular role that I was in, there were, there were 12 of us uh, in 2008. By 2011, I was one of two uh, that had mm-hmm. that, that role and that responsibility for the organization. And so, you know, really to make a long story short, I walked in one day and my career there was over. And uh, it was, it was, I would say 80% a surprise, 20% not a surprise, but I had a good network. I'd, I'd lived in Seattle at that point for, for almost 12 years. Um, and so my thought process was, well, I'll, I'll find something else and, and I'll stay in Seattle. I'm established here um, and, and I'll survive. So it was never, it was never a sense of panic, but it was a very clear understanding of this is what my path is going to be. It'll be slightly different uh, with a different company, but I'm very sad in my life and, and very comfortable where I'm at. And I ended up getting a call from a recruiter um, to interview with a company in Chicago. And I said, you know, I don't, it sounds like a good opportunity, but I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing in Seattle. I don't want to relocate. I don't know anyone in Chicago. So I, I, I think I'm going to pass. And so the recruiter pushed a little more um, and, you know, we ended up parting and, and he called back two or three days later and he said, look, I've, I've, I've got your resume. I, I, I know your background. 
I've talked to the company. They're really interested. And if nothing else, they'll give you a free trip to Chicago. Why don't you come out, interview? And if you don't like it, you don't have to take it. So I ended up, after a couple more days of, of uh, I would say, negotiation with the recruiter, uh, I ended up traveling to Chicago, interviewed with the company over the course of two days, loved the opportunity, hmm. loved the culture. Um, and it was really the company opportunity that set me on a path to having a global role. And one of the things that I liked about the process, they laid out a very clear development plan and what they wanted me to do for the first 12 months I was there, what then I would take on after that first 12 months. And, and to their credit, they lived up to, to every bit of that. And, and obviously, I needed to, to do my part during that process and during that time period. But it was really a turning point for me in that it took me out of my comfort zone, both personally and professionally, exposed me to, again, a global operation, which I had never had previously. And, and it's today, uh, I, can, I can look at that one moment and know it has gotten me where I am today in my career. As a side note, if I had not moved to Chicago, I would not have met my wife, uh, who also had just moved to Chicago, and we ended up meeting uh, about six months after we both came. We, we came, hmm. uh, she was re- relocating from Manhattan, I was coming from Seattle, and, and we we met um, four or five months after we both arrived. And, and I just, again, I look back on all the different decisions that I could have made uh, throughout that process that would have made my life very, very different today. And hmm. I think the lesson there for me is you always have to be open to exploring new opportunities, getting outside your comfort zone and knowing what your comfort zone is. I mean, again, there are things that, that I wouldn't do today that you know, just clearly off the table. But I think whether it's as a part of my current role or whether it's a part of new opportunities, um, being willing to, to challenge that comfort zone and, and, and the status quo is really, really important. And I think, again, for me, that was about 12 years ago. Um, if I hadn't been willing to, to take that chance, so to speak, um, don't know where I'd be today, but it certainly wouldn't be where I'm at right now. That's a good story. And it's, it's interesting to hear that story after you revealed your Enneagram type, type one, because right. that is, that's not the, I would say the preferred type one vibe where, Hey, we're going into the unknown. This could be messy. Right. I've got it under control here. We're driving you. And, uh, but you, but then you were able to bring your type one to your new role and obviously have a lot of success, but I, I love that. And it's a great lesson for all of us or a great reminder that the classic idea of, you know, so much opportunity happens outside of your comfort zone. Right. And you were willing to step into it and, uh, met your wife in the middle of America. It's, it cracks me up. One's in yep. the West Coast, one's East Coast. You had to meet in the middle, literally. We did. Yeah. Uh, uh, to uh, come together. Man, John, such a good story. It's such a great interview. What's your parting thought for our listeners today? I, I think from my perspective, it's, it's if I were to, to leave the listeners with one thought, it would be enjoy the moment. And, and that can encompass so many mm-hmm. different things. Uh, throughout a, both a, a professional career and a personal life. And, and I've talked about that a few times uh, during our conversation today. And for me personally, and I'm assuming uh, for, for those people who are working on anything they're not good at, just because you know you're not good at something 
it doesn't mean it's easy to address it. But I think if you, for me at least, and I think for, for the people that are listening to the podcast, if you can enjoy the moment and appreciate the things that you have, it puts all of the other pieces into perspective. And again, I think helps you be a more effective leader and a more effective human. Hmm. John, we got to hang out again sometime, I think. Would love to do it. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.